0: Hey, and welcome to theqalead.com. Today, I'm joined by a very good friend, Pete Jenkins, the founder of Gamification UK and the Gamification Awards. He's a lecturer on gamification at the University of Brighton, and he has literally changed my world. So if you've not heard of gamification, or even don't think it's relevant, you know, it will, this session will be perfect to give you the understanding of why you've got to think about gamifying some of your experiences, especially if you're doing user experience, and also how to promote innovation and and, and culture within your organization. So I'm going to hand over to my good friend, Pete, who's literally got me hooked. I'm going to his gamification guild every Friday, and it has changed my world.
1: In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad
0: software. Great session and welcome to the
1: show, Pete. I'm Pete Jengers. I run a gamification consultancy. That's the thing I've done for the last eight years. Um, before that, for the previous 12, I ran a technology company. So, um, and I made some classic mistakes in the beginning, which was like, just say yes to any technology question and try and solve it. So you learn faster in doing it that way. Um, so basically worked, I did a little bit of security software as a reseller to begin with, um, built websites, sold accounting software, um, even did some networking and cabling, went physical with it the works building servers all sorts of things um you soon learn out learn from that what has high margin what doesn't and what makes you money or not um, got more exciting when I got into telecoms and broadband to support VoIP uh phone calls uh, must have been a while back I got into that because I sold that business eight years ago uh so fairly early you're a adopter of technology I like. I like technology and I like seeing trends in it and adopting, not the super early adopter, but when it's like there's enough money to be made, there's enough business to be there. Um, Throughout the whole of that experience, I've always worked with CRMs, Customer Relationship Management Databases. Um, So for the first 12 years, we imported some from different parts of the world. And then eight years ago, we started importing gamified ones. And uh, indeed, one of my many, Businesses is I have a joint venture with another a Microsoft Gold Partner where we've built a semi gamified CRM that sits inside Microsoft Teams, which was good timing at the beginning of this year. Turned out has uh, has been a big growth spurt on that. In terms of the gamification stuff, which is what I live and breathe, one hundred percent of the time, I teach it part time at three different universities, mainly my local one, Brighton, uh, but also King's College London and uh, ESCP Europe, a French business school. And uh, in terms of consulting work, I was quite lucky because I sold a previous business, a telecoms business, first I got into this, So I've been able to pick and choose what I work on in terms of uh, projects. So there's no great theme, like a particular industry niche, but whatever catches my interest tends to win out. Um, so... At the moment, what's busy in these times of COVID is health-related projects and gamification, uh, such as what we've been looking at, and also uh, quite a lot of gamified apps. So everyone's realizing that you need to interact with people wherever they are, working from home, whatever, and how do we get people to change their behaviors in those apps? Those, those, Those are the two biggest bits. The other thing I get a lot of requests for is gamifying e-learning and learning. Um, But I don't always take those. It depends on the project, how interesting it is.
0: Well, it's it's a fascinating uh, niche area. And I think that's what I I know a lot of people probably who are listening are kind of, when they think of gamification, they think of of games, right? Which is not really the case. And so how would you kind of best explain to those listeners, you know, what what gamification is?
1: So... uh, The easiest way is to say, like, uh, we steal the best bits of games, the stuff that's really engaging, the stuff that really draws your attention in, and then we see what of that we might be able to use in the real world to change people's behaviors. Okay. That's, like, a practical way of looking at it. I quite like um, gamification, I think, works and is a big industry because it's a way of practically applying motivational theories and psychological theories that exist uh, quite easily. You know, so whether it's self-determination theory or flow, things like that, there's a game, a set of game mechanics that really relate closely to it that mean you can uh, easily apply it. One of my very first customers was actually the professor, the professor of psychology at a university. And I was like, I don't know why I'm teaching you this stuff. You know it. And he said, yeah, but I didn't know how to use it. And I think that's a key thing is you can understand the theory and then you've got to work out how to actually use it and apply it day to day. What is gamification? So it's the process of taking things where there are people involved, making it uh, more engaging generally, like some getting more involvement. It's probably a good way of looking at it. So someone's more into the task. Therefore they're more likely to do the result you want. Okay. Whether that's use less water, increase buy more from you um that sort of thing whatever whatever the end objective is
0: so i, I guess with that in mind and again it's probably another misconception for probably some of our listeners as well will be things like um game theory right so the idea of we mentioned the word players for a second and you know the idea with game theories like players moves events outcome so you're kind of changing the flow of those and and, and to a des- desired result well game
1: theory is nice and confusing for gamification and, and game design itself because it's just a psychological theory about how we interact with each other as opposed to uh anything else whereas the game elements are more how you put them together uh, the situations you build the game worlds you design the aesthetic you put across that then encourages different behaviours,
0: whatever they might be. So with that, I guess kind of game mechanics is kind of one of the things that always comes to my mind with these kind of things. And um, and I think I mentioned to you at the the Gamification Guild that, uh, you know, I've been playing this Disney game. And it was really interesting because two weeks ago, they changed the game mechanics um, and there were so many people that complained online and there was just so much... Kind of, you know, I'm not going to say brand damage, but you know, kind of the associated fallout by just changing a component of the game mechanic without really validating that's the do, you know, to get that kind of result outwards. So, how do you advise organisations to kind of, you know, protect the the integrity of what they're doing and and how important that is to their customers?
1: Well, there's a few big questions there. You were right. There's going to be some tricky ones. <clears throat> I mean. People don't like change, generally. I mean, one of the other types of projects we get quite a lot is culture change programs. So how do we gamify those? And there, there's a lot to it, but I would say the simplest answer is around co-creation, so getting people on board. The, the beauty of games is that nearly everyone who works for you plays games, yeah, and, and the number is growing all the time. So, around you in your organization, there are game players. So, those are the ones you can go to immediately and get them on board with the project. Yeah. And although I call it co creation, it's just like the more of those people who are involved in the game and the gamification, the more likely they'll spread a positive word about it, and get other people to adopt it. Um, particularly, it's like if we partly created it, then we take more ownership of it. And, and what your game, the Disney game, didn't do was ask the audience yeah they probably did some testing that said actually in general people prefer this new game mechanic but then they
0: failed to think about how to roll it out and get adoption it's really interesting because um i i'm i'm kind of using it as a bit of an experiment in the back of my mind for a for an upcoming conference and part of that was it you know it was interesting the response they kind of said well it's a freemium game it's free so you have, uh, you know, the developers are, are free to make changes, right? Uh, and then, you know, it was interesting because in the States, the, the the obvious go-to was a whole stack of players started creating lawsuits saying, well, actually, you know, I want access to, I've paid real money for these characters. And, you know, they're obviously very passionate about it. And, you know, to the point that, you know, they're, they, they're going to go down a legal channel. Now, I, I think that is an extreme. And, you know, but I, I do think it's really interesting because people change applications and, and like you said people don't uh, always embrace change um and so something that could sound like a feature f- to one person you know could could mean something completely different to the other and one of the things i was fascinated by when when going through some of your material was around the player types and you know obviously different player types are going to be interested or more excited about one feature or less interested in another you know for, for the listeners what what kind of player types typically are they
1: Okay, so uh, these are the theories of Anjay Marzuski, who, who looks to the user type hexad as a way of describing uh, the type of players we have, and um, it boils down to six, four of which relate neatly to things like self-determination theory and other motivational theories. So those are uh, philanthropists, people who like doing things for the greater good, uh, explorers or free spirits who like a bit more autonomy or choice in what they're doing. Uh, There are achievers who are basically very much into mastering new skills, getting better at stuff. Uh, Then there are players who are particularly into just um, using the system to get rewards, shall we say. Uh, Then there's a couple of others. Disruptors is my personal favorite. There's not many of them, but they're the the most innovative, uh, but also the most likely to cause trouble if they're not looked after and channeled in the right way. And uh, right now I've just forgotten the sixth one. That's good, isn't it? I teach it all the
0: time. But I think that that is, a, a, it's fascinating because I think most I, people, I got to, you've got it—socializers. socialize. It's socialize. It's
1: we all like doing stuff together with other people. I actually think of it as a power up for the others. So um, in terms of across the world, who who are the players and what types of player type are? There's um, many, like 30 or 40,000 people have taken a survey Uh, asking various questions about how they play games and interact with life. And we can see that in developed economies, because it does change in different parts of the world, almost 50% of people are made up of these free spirits and philanthropists. So these are people who want to do things for the greater good, but also want a lot of choice and autonomy in what they do, which is great. But what you see with most games and gamification is it's actually built for achievers and players, i.e. it gives you points, badges, and leaderboards. And that and that doesn't even it equates to like twenty to twenty five percent of our potential player base. So it's not enough. Yeah. So generally speaking, when you're building those, you're not including enough of the audience.
0: Um, it happens because they're the
1: easiest bits to build,
0: and maybe even the most exciting and fun bits to build as well. And I. I... You know, one of my things which I've always had a real challenge with, I know we talked about this a little bit when you've been helping out with uh, the work that we've been doing at MIT, which just cultural differences, right? The differences between one country to another, like you just mentioned, and and that split. And also this kind of, and I think I brought it on the TED talk, this this kind of one uh, app to rule them all in the sense if you create an app with certain app journeys that are all pretty much, we're all going through the same flows. And it, it doesn't feel like those days when we were kind of, uh, you know, promised this mass personalization of, you know, maybe the color changes or, you know, you've, you're it learned your kind of, your flow and it, it changes. It's got more of a responsive design. And But, you know, the way that we, we do it is everyone goes through the same onboarding process. Everyone goes through the same settings and, and, and has the same options. And, I, and it feels like most organizations, like every organization there and everyone that's on the App Store, maybe they haven't really even thought about gamification and and the importance of of this uh, to their brand. And, you know, you see so many apps that fail, you know, they fail. They may be beautifully designed, great uh, game games or great apps, but they just don't have the legs because they don't think about that engagement with the the end uh, uh, user or player. Do you think this is a missed opportunity, and maybe it's something that's not part of design and solution thinking, and it should be?
1: I do, yeah. Um, one of the other tools we use in combination with the player types is um, the player journey. So this is thinking about the whole journey for each person. Um, and I would tend to design the player journey for each player type. So there'd be six, at least six. Hopefully, you can find some stuff that works for more than one player type at the same time, just to make things a bit cheaper. But basically, you want to think about the emotional journey you're taking each of those individuals on um, from before they even discover your app. Yeah, how do they discover it? What what mood or emotion are you setting in their mind when they first see an advert or a flyer or a blog post about it? Then what's the onboarding experience like, which is what you were talking about, and it, even at that point, I feel like it should be personalized. Some people will want to go through things in a different order. You've got people who like to dive in. they don't want to look at the instructions to begin with, so you've got to give them that option potentially or do you you know go to test that out uh, other people want to be uh, you know scaffolded through held their have their hands held, try some stuff out in a safe sandbox first um, but all the time you want people to be experiencing the positive, what's the positive? To be engaged in it, yeah, to feel like they're actually progressing, right, even in the onboarding process. So how how does that go? And only then, after you've done all that, are you actually then getting them to do the day-to-day thing that your app is for, yeah, the the habit-building or scaffolding phase. Then the other thing that's quite often missed in these experiences is what do you do with someone who gets really good at it, maybe finishes all the content fast, Yeah. And there's a bunch of things you can do, but you have to have planned that. And it's often missed out because people – often a designer doesn't necessarily start by th- – or a company doesn't think necessarily think anyone's ever going to complete these things. I don't know why, um, but it's not the case. Uh, we built – last year, the year before, the year before for my, my conference, we had a gamified app to use in the run-up to the conference – lots of different game mechanics to use to encourage uh, attendees before they even attended the event to learn about the sponsors, learn about all the speakers, uh, do some tasks, uh, connect to people on social media, all sorts of different things. And we built lots, you know, there was probably three or 400 challenges in there. So you'd think, you know, we got two months. till the conference, a few people might progress quite fast. One person finished everything in less than 24 hours. And you're like, okay, so that happened. <laughs> and uh, so you you have to think about the fact that some people will get excited and do that. And then what do you do for that person? They, they're like so excited, but now they've got nothing left to do. So you need to channel them in some way. To take the other part of your point about personalization, this is something I think we should steal from the games industry because all the latest games you might have a million, two million players and they're all experiencing it slightly differently. And just a little bit of machine learning, a little bit of AI, however you want to put it, about learning what I like in a game and then giving me more of those challenges or that. I quite like the fact that some of the games now, if you obviously like the story elements, it's going to put more of the narrative in front of you. If you obviously like the fighting, it's going to put more encounters in front of you. You know? Um, and, And but keeping the flow, and doing some other bits. So there's a few algorithms you can put into play, but mostly everyone has a completely different experience now when they play a modern game. Um, I don't feel like that happens in apps yet or in our work software.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, going back to what I I love what you say about the... The pre and post experiences and, and, and feelings as well. You know, part of what we, what we unfortunately class as user experience design or UX design in, in the, the things about these kind of personalities and, and also these kind of positive and ne- negative interactions. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because uh, to me, a lot of it is pre and post of the application. I don't, I don't feel that the engagement, once you're there, you, you're there, right? You're there and you're going to, you're going to engage for a certain amount of time. And I, I, I've not talked about this, this use case, but we're doing a paramount. We're thinking about having a, 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 a theme park in London, which seemed like a logistical challenge all the way over to the, uh, the, the mosh kind of um, uh, uh, marshes out, so getting people into London and out. Right. Um, and we were talking about the pre and post experience, a lot about this kind of, well, you know, you come off the train at St. Pancreas you know, maybe you see, um, you know, a banner uh, with, you know, uh, the new theme park. And, and for a certain age group, they may want help getting the, the mobile app on, right? They might not just want to scan a QR scan and just do it themselves. Other ones may, you know, get pushed that based on, you know, their GPX location entering a location. And, you know, maybe they're, the weather, it, it tells you it's going to be a nice day. It's perfect. You know, it gives you a real-time discounted ticket, and then there's the post experience as well in the sense of you've been to that event, you've used that app, you've, you've, you've done something and then how does it interact with the infrastructure? How does it tell you the best way to get back or hotels or, you know, linking experiences together. So, you know, even though a Hilton or a, a or a Marriott might be, um, you know, a different application, it, it can interact into that experience to give you that kind of concierge unique experience from you driving your car, to getting on the train, to being open to kind of dynamic, kind of whether it's you want to go to West End or you want to go to the theme park, you know, bring all that kind of stuff together. And we, we at the time, uh, we looked at running theme park as a service, which everyone wraps this great as a service idea on it. And we were going to use video analytics to kind of look at people's responses, right? So they they come on the ride, they, they're they smiling or they're screaming or what a pen, your desired response is. You know, and you, you're you continuously monitoring that. And obviously people like Disney have done this with the Disney band. You know, they've even used that IoT analytics to kind of say these toilet booths are broken, you know, because of people avoiding a particular one. You know, it's it's all this kind of information, which it feels like, you know, the app is just, uh, you know, maybe a, an unnecessary front end in a way. that actually with, like you said, AI, um, and, and what we're seeing with this kind of digital transformation is that, these experiences should be more chained together and they should be more personalized and made more unique to you. Whereas at the moment we've got a lot of noise and, you know, people pushing us stuff that potentially we don't want. So, you know, in this new reality, you know, what's your kind of advice to to people who are going through these pain points of building a mobile app and, and maybe waiting until they launch it on day one to validate, that the experiences are what they're expecting or, or, how, or how users adopt them. That's, I mean, that's quite interesting. I was chatting
1: to uh, someone about this the other day. Depending <clears throat> on your budget, there's a few different approaches, but the, the least budget you have, then the more modeling you should do, thinking about what will happen in terms of the game mechanics, how fast people can win points or progress through the system and what that might look like. Yeah, so you can spot a few generally with a bit of modelling you can spot some outliers where it's going to go wrong and tweak it. Yeah. <clears throat> but the most important thing, the thing that happens with most games is lots of playtesting. Yeah. And it's pretty simple. Even if you just role play um between the the team the experience by reading out the actual words you're going to use, things like that. You'll soon find out what's fun and what's not fun, what's not working. Yeah, or a particular turn of phrase that actually turns everybody off. And quite often it is down to wording. Yeah, we build lots of tech, but actually sometimes it's all down to the wording or the way something looks that just takes them out of this flow, this journey, and takes the magic away. So, um, and playtesting, it doesn't have to be big and complex. Yeah, you can get a really long way with mock ups. Um, talk-throughs, work-throughs, role-playing it, that sort of thing, before you actually have to do physical testing of an actual product.
0: No, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of a friend, Mike Anderson. He was uh, used to be the MD of News International, and then he ended up starting a boutique app development company called Chelsea Factory. And, you know, part of what he, whenever I was there, it was always really cool to be, you know, the the wall was there. There was all the journeys that went through. They'd sit down, they'd rapidly prototype it. You know, they'd get it in front of the customer. You know, they use an infuse or, or whatever else to kind of give them that interaction where they not written any code but they can decide on the flow and how it, how it goes uh, the user journey should be and i always thought it was it, it was fascinating and you know part of this this digital landscape was this ability to kind of create a hypothesis or an idea and then change it you know and i remember one of the examples he gave me was uh was Jaguar Land Rover and they had this leasing scheme that allowed you to swap your cars out depending on the weather so, you know, you could, you could have a, you know, a nice F type for the summer and then, you know, things are starting to get a bit misty and horrible. And you then change to a, a Land Rover and, you know, it gives you this kind of flexibility, but it gave you this for a certain type of user. It gave you this kind of ability to customize and be, you know, not tied down to a particular contract. And this is this kind of new era of, you know, smart contracts and, and, and all this technology to give people more flexibility and allow them more. You know freedom, and I think this also comes at a cost, right? And 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 I'm going to kind of go to the dark side a little bit in the sense of now. I know you've you you've, you've kind of gave us your Jedi wisdom on 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 the importance of of, of gamification. Um, but I'm going to go. You know, one of the things uh, I know you we were talking about before was kind of the the social dilemma to what's just been come out on Netflix. Right. And, uh, you know, part of that ends with this kind of idea of humane software developer, right. Uh, Development, you know, the idea that we're building software for, for the people. Right. And um, last week I was, I watched a keynote from uh, Steve Wozniak, who kind of said, you know, about the fact that, you know, when the internet was born, you know, everyone was really excited. It was this opportunity to create great ideas, you know, do things for the, you know, good, you know, online publications, you know, eBooks, you know, all this kind of fantastic um, kind of for good uh, kind of projects. And then now it seems to be shaking a little bit at the, at, at the kind of how humane software development is done, how our data is used, you know, how, certain companies are using our data right um and i guess this comes back to the great hack in the sense of another netflix series which talked about you know having those twenty thousand data points for each person and then even more recently the last couple of weeks the 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 biggest data uh, data breach uh, data leak of trump's data uh, campaign data for 100 million um uh politically exposed people within the U S right. And, and the data that they had to profile every single individual. Now, obviously that's not gamification, but, you know, you, one of the things that we're always talking about from this kind of privacy by design approach is, you know, taking just enough information that you need to be able to impact the experience. But, you know, how important do you think it is to, to kind of think about these mechanics as we're doing, um, you know, even gamification aspects?
1: Well, I do anyway, because when we're thinking about the player journey, we think about the emotions we want to create in people at every stage of that. So, for instance, by the time you finish the player journey, you don't want people not trusting your brand, for instance, yeah? which is what you're potentially talking about here. as the outcome of mis- abusing the data. So, And the nice thing about games is that they only work if people volunteer to play. Okay, so even when we put a gamification system into a big corporate, we basically tell people, hey, it'd be great if you played this, but you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes we'll track all the data just because there's we want want a control group to a certain extent so you can see how effective things are. But a good game encourages the people in it (coughs) to encourage everyone else to play. Yeah. Um, As soon as you're forced to play it, you're not going to enjoy it. Therefore, it loses its effect. So I think at heart, particularly for long-term gamification, it's very difficult to do it unethically. Yeah. its I mean, it's perfectly possible to do it in the short term. Yeah. Because you don't have to worry about the long-term effects in that plan. But for long-term gamification to work, you know, if I'm gamifying a sales force, I don't want to gamify them for two months. I need to gamify them for the next 10 years to stay engaged. So I can't abuse the data. They've got to volunteer to play. Um, So that's why I think gamification makes a nice framework for this. And I I think it gets a bad rep because it's been abused in the short-term environments. I'm thinking about the Disney. There was a Disney one where they, they created a game for monitoring the cleaners in the Disney hotels. And the way they actually implemented it was the mistake. Okay, So eventually the staff called it the electronic whip, which is not a good name for your game. (laughs) <laughs> but basically they thought they had to skip breaks and things in order to achieve um, and not lose their jobs, which was not the aim of the game, but it was how it was uh, perceived actually rather than anything else. So they got that one wrong mm-hmm. uh, for that reason. But, but, but I, else, I mean, actually, it's an interesting thing. I, For my students at the university, this last two weeks, <clears throat> I have been generating a lot of data from them. Uh, in order to put them into teams, normally what you let the students choose their own teams or maybe you select what they go into. Instead, I got them to take a gamified psychometric assessment. so they play a game for ten to fifteen minutes. That game generates twenty twenty five thousand data points about each of those students you Now i 've got fifty students who've taken this. Um, I then get a massive amount of data about their strengths, their weaknesses, how fast they might work their attention to detail, their accuracy, how analytical their minds are, things like that. And I'm using that data to form them into teams that should work really well. So a team of like four people, each with a different strength, key strength in there. And then I was thinking about the fact that I really want to believe in this. So traditionally, as a university, you would not share the individual's data with the whole rest of the class. Yeah. Or even the other team members. Um, but I compromised and I sent out a summary so that they've got actual evidence in front of them of why it's going to be a high-performing team so they can see a few strengths and weaknesses. So They've not I've got like, all 25,000 data points, just uh, six summary figures for each of the strength areas. Um, and I, I had to think about that quite a lot because you don't necessarily want to share that data. But I also thought, if it makes them more effective as a team, then it's going to be worth it. Yeah. And I'm waiting for pushback on that one.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a really good idea. But it actually, somebody just messaged me today who's another a CEO of a startup co- company who builds AI platforms. And it was really interesting because they kind of went through various different forms of the software development lifecycle. So they, the company's been established, for, met for many years, um so you know they they've been doing the traditional waterfall v model kind of approach uh, and then more recently they kind of went digital and started doing agile um and then you know they 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 were able to do kind of uh, great things as far as kind of a minimum viable product which we won't get into but you know <laughs> we you know our concerns around that and then there's this they started this kind of lean startup kind of approach where there was less focus on the development of the technology but more focus on, kind of the quick feedback from the customer well, You know would these kind of concepts be something that you'd be interested in right um and it was funny because i sat down with ben and who's the ceo and he kind of said to me he said um i'm getting rid of all my staff and I, I thought it was a joke at the time um and he did and he just removed them all And he said from now on i i want to do i want to build teams based on No, no longer job titles, um, kind of, uh, but actually, uh, in exactly what you said, in the kind of skills that complement or align with the the kind of uh, the the values the organization had, Um, and you know, too many chefs, and you know, that kind of thought process is they would what they'd done is they'd hired a whole stack of data scientists with, you know, a view of creating uh, a data science capability. And then they thought, so this isn't the right way of doing it, right? You know, part of it is we want these certain types. They don't have to be a data scientist or from academia. They, they can purely be from any walk of life who show these critical thinking, problem solving domain kind of skills and they complement each other. And I've, I've seen this a number of times where you get very strong characters within the organization and then you lose some of the quality of those people who maybe are uh, introverts, you know, and being able to profile them. Yes, I'm not saying it's Myers-Briggs, but some other kind of scale of, of digital cognitive skills is something which I think we're, we're kind of uh, not seeing. And I, I was I was really um, disappointed this week with with the UK government, where they'd uh, sent out a whole stack of, of, of banners with different people who uh, had jobs, ballerinas, etc., saying your next job is going to be cyber, um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, back to Tim Robertson and this, you know, killing creativity. You know, part of it is that we're not encouraging um the, those kind of those uh skills that the arts and 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 creativity and, and thought and challenging and and you know the next generation of leaders we're kind of boxing people into one kind of category you're a developer or you're a tester or you're a you're a project manager and that kind of limits our exposure or our ability to challenge certain things that maybe are outside of our you know our tiny silos and it i think work,
1: it? I, I worked with a a data science company a couple of years back and they had some amazing data scientists and their issue was the scientists could answer any question from the data that you liked but getting them to come up with original questions was a different mindset so they had to build teams of data scientists and data analysts which was another bit and then question creators there was this other role that needed to happen which is like uh, i just want something answered And what's that going to be? And it needs to be not siloed, not in that box. It has to come from outside their world to to get anything innovative out of that data. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite as clear cut as that, but that was the thing they were failing at: was raising questions, asking the right questions, asking interesting questions,
0: and asking some really bad ones as well. Because you need the full mix, don't you? We do. I, I think you know we've 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 seen this trend happen before with you know big data ten years ago. Everything was going to be big data, and it was all about you know data is the new oil, uh and then they were capturing all this information, and then nobody really had the questions the questions of what to ask for the data and then we moved on now we've got machine learning um and actually we're in the same kind of position right we we have we don 't know what the questions are to ask um and I think this is where things change on and we get put on the head and it, you know I think it's really interesting because you've had some roles um you know, you've got the the title of export cha- uh, champion, and you've also got the uh, you know part of your uh, your uh, lecturing. You also do entrepreneurship, right now. Do you feel there's that, that kind of uh, kind of skill set, that kind of lean startup, that kind of you know lean thinking, and and you know questioning, and and you know is that is that something that may be missing?
1: Well, there's lots of stuff out there now about um, what they call it generalists, yeah. You need a, a little knowledge in a lot of areas to come up with interesting mixes and synthesises, um, which I, I, that's definitely my my bag. That's what I like doing. So I love business and I love games, and the mix of the two makes me reasonably unique uh, in my in my sector. There's a lot of academics and there's a lot of business people, and there's where's the mix. Um, but you also need specialists as well to actually help you implement what you come up with. So you still need to mix, but I definitely think you need um, this synthesis thing. I think there's some research that says the, most of the latest innovations have only come about as a result of mixing people from completely different sectors or niches, you know, whether within science or outside of science, um, because there's so much knowledge out there that once you're very sector, very niche, it's difficult to create new without pulling something in from somewhere else. The same is true in the games industry as well. Yeah, it's such a big sector now that you need a range of people. You need an expert to build something, but you need someone else to pull and be inspired by lots of different parts of pop culture, of game mechanics, of what the game engine is capable of, and then coming up with a thing. It's going to be a new, nice, customized, personalized experience for someone.
0: it's fascinating, and you know, I think we're we're not even. Touching the kind of the edge of this this iceberg, right you know I think a lot of organizations are using maybe standard methodologies which they 've used in the past, uh, like design thinking um, and 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 applying those and hoping to get a different out, uh, outcome right which I think is is probably not going to work. Um, you know, going forwards. And I think this is a brave new world. And, you know, part of it is, you know, maybe even when we sandbox people like chief digital officers or chief gamification officers, you know, we could make any uh kind of C-suite role to put fit in here. But part of it, even like a chief data officer or a chief security officer, ends up being... Limited by what they're doing, right? What well, you know, that's small area and they've got so many things that they're dealing with, whether that's compliance or regulatory, which is, this is not really a re- regulated kind of industry as yet. And I think this was one of the big challenges that came out of the great hack was, you know, how do we allow people to own their own data and on the information that's store, stored about them, whether that be, the algorithms that you're running to generate hypotheses on your students, to you know what Facebook use uh, to identify politically exposed people, right? So I think you know, part of it. There's so many scales, and sitting down with Jason from who was uh, Google, he was kind of saying, you know, they had the anti evil team, right, which would go around sit sit down with the team and kind of go, you know, are these the you know how are you using the data? What, what what's the purpose? What's the, you know, what is the value given to the customer and what are we to, uh, capturing and what should we be capturing? Uh, and he kind of said, yeah, you know, part of it was when he left. Um, and there's obviously quite recently been um, in the UK uh, legislation around whistleblowers, right, around, you know, if you're seeing something ethically in, uh, or uh, incorrect being doing, whether that's using production data whether that be you know training something with some kind of bias which should not exist you know it sh- you should be protected to be able to bring that to light and i think you know this it has a, it has a a big you know um ch- challenge now and a, a lot of media coverage around this and it also you know part of i think neurodiversity also playing into this is this you know how can we be responsible for you know people's emotional states, right? You know, part of it is there is an emotional state which you are doing, which is giving them the the happiness. You know, you know, how do you be responsible about that, right? And you know, they they say that you know the the, the famous quote of the only other industry that has the, the the term "users" is the drug industry, right? And you know, part of our goal is to engage more, but maybe we shouldn't be doing. We should be doing a high quality level of engagement and less less often, and, and, you know, maybe that is the digital interaction that we're doing for, is the still to still get the enjoyment and, you know, and do more with the time that we're doing. Like You know, you know what's kind of happened with, with technology as we've gone along is we've gone from, you know, copying files from an MP3 player and then plugging it into your, to your car to you just saying to Alexa, in your car, you know, play this track. You know, the complexity has been reduced. We're still getting the same outcome. But maybe we need to work out how to best regulate that as far as, you know, should you be pushing people notifications? Should you be giving that kind of social anxiety of, you know, the badge, you know, the badge uh, on, you know, how many messages you've got on your LinkedIn or something? And, you know, people literally will go into the app to clear down their messages. Um, And, you know, maybe we need to, we know they work. We know these approaches work, but maybe we need to be more, you know, humane and, and responsible for, 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 for our interactions and allow people more freedom.
1: I actually completely agree. But I also think this is one of the places where gamification has an advantage over games, which is that, generally speaking, we, people are only playing because they want a particular outcome, something of more purpose. You know, One of the, the key motivational theories is around purpose. If we think what we're working towards is of more benefit, either to the world or for a meaningful personal purpose, then we're more engaged in it and we have to make sure we include that in the criteria for what we're building yeah but you can tell it's difficult at the moment i know it's like you've got near Ayal, the author who wrote great stuff around how to build these habits and trigger these things whose latest book is indistractable which is about how to protect yourself from gamification and these sort of things so uh there obviously is a balance and it's not quite right at the moment but i think ethically. For long-term effective gamification, you can aim for the purpose motive as one of the key drivers, then you're going to end up with people not worrying about it. Also, there's something about designing for how much interaction with your app you want. Uh, There's a great example about getting this right, which you see now more in corporates, which is they like to build a gamified app, but they also naturally don't want to draw their staff away from their other jobs. Yeah, so I saw a a game for Santander Bank in Poland for their counter staff. So right from the start, they knew they wanted their staff to be at the counter as much as possible. So the game was limited to 10 minutes of gameplay every other day. And if you achieve your sales KPIs, you get an extra five minutes of gameplay. quite a simple thing, but that limiting thing actually worked to their benefit anyway because it made it more of an exclusive resource, made people more excited to play, and they were expecting... Uh, you know, they were aiming for sixty percent take up of this game across fourteen hundred counter staff. And after a year they had ninety-nine percent take up. And this is an audience of like over average age, about forty-eight, fifty, eighty-eight percent women. They did not expect them to be gamers. And I think a lot of it was down to the fact that it was just ten to fifteen minutes every other day. And you you only got the extra five minutes if you were achieving your business KPIs as well. So it directly impacted their results. They enjoyed the game experience, which was a bit like Sims, but you were working in teams to build a little village and comp- compete against other branches. So um, what you see with these apps where they're getting too many notifications is people eventually feel negative about it and get rid of the app, whereas what you want is someone to be a customer forever. So you've got to find that balance and maybe a bit of artificial, you no, know, you've got to wait, it works well. I quite like in things like Candy Crush and stuff. Once you're out of lives, you've got to wait for them to build
0: back up. They don't make you wait long enough, but they're on the right track. Well, oh, yeah, I, I think you know there's so many angles around there, and I, I, you know, I have to say, I love the, the gamification aspect, and and it's it's been I'm without too much of a pun, game changing for for me, and in the sense of the work that we've done with the, the guys at MIT and, and and changing the onboarding experience it's opened my mind completely to a a whole stack of possibilities I didn't even think about before, which it's because you just, it's applying a whole new discipline. You know, maybe the title needs to be slightly different, like social responsibility or some kind of thing than gamification, but it is going to change the way that interactions are with, with human computer interactions going forwards, right. And digital interactions. And, you know, what I am most excited about is, is, is it, is this for good, right? In the same as AI for good, you know, aspect. It's like, um, you're starting where we finished is kind of, you know, the Teams example you gave. And um, Claudie, my friend, works at Microsoft on the Teams team. Uh, Can't say that too many times. And, uh, you know, she sent me this link, which was uh, around their Insight platform about what they're they're planning to bring in for 2021 around um, helping provide... Um, support for, you know, going back to the neurodiversity for people who aren't maybe engaging, they're not sharing their screen, you know, their, their camera, you know, there's lots of little bits of information, whether that be the sentiment analysis of how they're interacting with the team, maybe it's the responses that they seem to be a bit down and they need, you know, some support within the team. And really applied these kind of gamification things to kind of happiness and just general well-being. And, you know, part of one of the the outcomes that we did for a conference last week was this kind of concept of a healthy organization, a digitally healthy organization, where your staff are healthy, m- mentally healthy, you know, all the stuff we've got with mindfulness. But like, it's a different world. You know, there's people having a lot more challenges. You know, I remember walking around the physical offices and they used to see these little uh stop signs where you could green amber red and you could go it, it was to avoid you know when people would didn't want to be engaged with and we don't have that now we've got this always on approach people constantly sending and receiving messages around the globe 24 hours a day um and you know the uh, dave snowden said at the on um, the conference that we're, we're about to hit a massive um you know a pandemic around mental illness coming February kind of next year around people realizing that the new norm and these challenges which they're getting of of working uh, in isolation is actually going to be quite detrimental for for society and I think you know we've got to be able to work out how to do that whether that's just a feature within teams that says you know I I want to talk with somebody or I want to have more interactions that what aren't about the, you know, the teen stand-up or something like that. Uh, and wasn't it kind there, of... There needs
1: to be a social element as well as the
0: work element.
1: Mm. <clears throat> I, I see what quite a few experiments going on in this, particularly at my university at the moment. There's a couple of lecturers who are really keen to, to support the mental health of people because we used, to, we used to bump into each other in the canteen and have a coffee and a bit of a chat or a moan or whatever. So now there's work, virtual water coolers. There's a great article on The Conversationist about virtual water coolers and the rise of that sort of thing by one of those lectures, uh, Paul Levy, which I highly recommend reading, actually, um, because it, they, people are thinking about this and they're trying to make things happen. Some people, I feel, are naturally happier in this virtual world. I know a lot of very happy introverts at the moment who, who are able to control their life and have as much or as little social interaction as they want. Um, and, and I, you know, the longer we're in lockdown, the more I'm going, becoming more introverted myself, which is like, a, it's interesting to watch it happen for someone who's normally a conference speaker and traveling and doing a lot of in-person interaction. There, there'll come a day when I'm like, I don't want to leave the house. I've got, got my screens. I'm here. Uh I got distracted myself there, but I... <laughs> We need to do something. I think there are things that can be done. Um, I think games have a part to play because there's a lot of. I saw, in the beginning of lockdown, you saw a lot of people having Zoom calls with their friends to catch up, and they were drinking and doing other stuff. Okay, now what I hear people saying is, we had a Zoom call and we played an online board game. Yeah, and we felt interactive around that. Um, For me, my my online hobby to begin with in lockdown was online poker, and I'd have a Zoom call going with my usual poker buddies, but we'd be playing poker online. We weren't even necessarily in the same game after a short while, once you lost your money and had to go into a new one, but had a social experience while still playing. Um, And it just adds this other social dimension to it, because if you think about how interactive we get when we're playing a game, yeah, um, depending on the type of people, they could be swearing. They could be upset. There could be a lot of joy. Uh, there's quite a few board games out there now, card games like Cards Against Humanity, things like that, where you're getting quite intense and personal, but actually it's letting out some of the stuff that normally you would only do in these in-person social interactions. So maybe there should be more research on which ones work best of these games for, for different demographics or people. But uh, there's room. There's room
0: out there for this. No, absolutely. And, you know, we have talked about this during the pandemic, really, around, you know, even just how you do the different types of games you can do, like the, the asynchronous ones or, you know, the different types of engagement models that still give you that level of connectivity. And, you know, partly, um, you know, he, one of the kind of the statements I would just say with Wozniak kind of mentioned about you know, what was the difference between, you know, Apple back in the 70s, 80s compared to now is, you know, he said they had this freedom, right? He had this freedom to, you know, think about stuff think about how to bring stuff together you know had this you know time to actually think about great things and you know we've heard the rumors you know oh google will give you one day a week to think about yeah. innovation but Bit you know <laughs> absolutely but you know part of it is that you, there's this kind of real question of you know is there enough flex if you think about um you know uh moving around at pieces you know you, you need to have that flexibility and i think you know being able to have those social breaks you know be able to have those level of interactions introducing gamification to the workplace as well as the apps that you design are is a game changing approach which I think will have higher engagement l- levels it'll be you know it'll have that digital health which we're looking for you know but it, it'll also change your men your, your your thought process of how you design more ethical social humane more applications which i think is more important than ever now and you know i think people who are listening need to reach out to you you know check out you've got so many great resources but you know how, how would you recommend for them to reach out to you and get in touch
1: oh cranky i mean right now um a great a great way would be to just uh, come along to our conference in 30 something days time online um, and because there's five days and each day' is focused on a different sector so there'd be something really interesting and and obviously I'll be hanging out there the whole time facilitating and doing other things so it'd be easy to meet me there um, whether you're into gamification and health or learning or marketing or employee engagement or actually managing communities is a new day this year which i'm quite excited about uh, otherwise just email me connect to me on LinkedIn um, tell me why you're connecting and then we'll have a chat, okay? About what your, what your hopes are, what you're trying to achieve, whether gamification is a good fit. It's not always the right fit. And um, see so what we can do to change the world.
0: Change the world. That, that sounds like the the uh, a great place to start. So thanks so much, Pete. We're gonna we'll have to get you back on again. And um, you know, thanks, Johnson. It's been great being here with
1: you. Thanks for the invite.